Hello, and welcome to Energy Transition Today. I'm Oliver. I'm Dila. And I'm Ash. And we've got a whole new name and setup for the and podcast. And a whole new jingle we? as well. We are here to bring you the latest news. There's been plenty on the news front, which Ash will take us through in a moment. There's been a lot of news in the offshore sector this week. We'll also be responding to the UK's changes to the CFD AR6, where strike prices have been announced for the upcoming auction round. Last week, Inspiratia also held our Energy Transition Awards. We'll be bringing you an update on all of the winners. And later on, we'll be turning to nuclear power and SMR's small modular reactors. We'll be taking apart the problems with one of the first SMR projects in the US. Approved by the US Nuclear Regulatory Commission, Dealer will be explaining what went wrong. The costs have been skyrocketing. I mean, as have uh, as has been the case with so many other technologies, but some of these newer ones do need a bit of a, some fiscally positive conditions to succeed, obviously, which is not the case for SMRs. Well, thank you. I'm looking forward to hearing more about that later. But first, Ash, can you start us off with the news? Thank you, Oliver. There's lots of news to go today, especially in the offshore sector. To kick things off, the Norwegian Ministry of Petroleum and Energy has shortlisted seven bidders for its Sorolege Nord So2 offshore tender. Inspiratia has found the list of bidders vying for the 1.5 gigawatt fixed foundation wind project, with notable players including BP, Statcraft, Equinor and Shell. If you want the full list, you can find that on our website, by the way. The bidding teams will now be invited to submit detailed financial and design plans with the preferred bidder expected to be announced in February 2024. So how has the Norwegian offshore tender process uh, gone so far? They, they ran into some problems earlier this year, I believe. Indeed. The Sorolege tender has faced several setbacks this year. In October, the ministry extended the application deadline to 15 November, following consultations with the European Free Trade Association Surveillance Authority. This was done to give participants more time to follow up on the changes made to enable the ESA to quickly authorise the granting of state support. Now, this was the second time Sorlige was pushed back, with the original deadline set on 4th of August. Utsira Nord, which is made up of three floating wind farms, was initially scheduled to be procured alongside Sorlige, but the public authority put the process on hold to clarify a potential regulatory conflict with the EU authorities. The progress on Utsira Nord is now expected in the first quarter of next year. Now, staying in the Nordic offshore sector... Danish developer Orsted has withdrawn from a Norwegian offshore wind partnership vying for a mandate under the previously mentioned Utsira Nord tender. The Blauvinch partnership was first formed in June 2021 and includes Orsted, Fred Olsen Seawind and Hafslund. Orsted announced its exit from the partnership last week, citing a shift in focus. In addition, the energy giant confirmed it will abstain from all Norwegian offshore tenders in the near future. Fred Olsen Seawind and Hafslund are expected to continue their bid for the Utsira Nord project. And this is the Danish company's second withdrawal from a high-profile offshore wind project this month. Earlier in November, it shelled plans to develop two offshore wind projects in New Jersey, U.S., citing macroeconomic factors, supply chain bottlenecks and rising interest rates. This is a really interesting story, I think. It's curious that Orsted are the ones who are kind of taking the lead in pulling back from auctions particularly because they are seen you know, by many rightly as a market leader in offshore wind. The fact that they're choosing not to participate in certain rounds, you mentioned the US withdrawal there as well. There's also been uh, major problems with the UK's Horn Sea offshore wind farm, where they're currently in negotiations with the government for retrospectively raising the strike price to uh, match current delivery costs. The problems for us that just seem to be building up. But the Norwegian government also this week has 
uh, sort of reiterated its plans that it does not intend to go fully net zero by 2050 alongside many other major European economies. Um, it this this week the energy minister doubled down, saying that the path from 2030 to 2050 would be relatively flat in terms of CO2 emissions. And this is from one of Europe's biggest oil and gas exporters. But not everyone is so pessimistic about offshore wind. For example, the U.S. Department of of Interior has granted final approval for the construction and operation of the Empire Wind offshore project. The project comprises of two offshore wind farms: the 816 megawatt Empire Wind One and the 1.26 gigawatt Empire Wind 2. The projects are owned by Equinor and BP, with each partner holding a 50% stake. Rounding up this talk about offshore wind, Ash, the UK CFD, what's happened? All right, so this is the last offshore wind story, I promise. Um, The UK government has raised the strike price for the offshore CFD scheme by over 50% in a bid to make projects economically viable. The allocation round six, which is due next year. For the allocation round 6 due next year, the maximum strike price has been increased by 66% for offshore wind projects, and brought, which is brought to now £73 per megawatt hour, and 52% for floating offshore wind projects, which is now brought to £176 per megawatt hour. The decision was spurred by the complete absence of offshore bids in the last auction round AR5. Now in AR6, Offshore wind will also be given a separate funding pot in recognition of the high number of projects ready to participate. The government has also published developed proposals to review application for the 2025 auction to include additional factors such such as societal impact. Well, Oliver, you're the offshore expert. Could you put that in context? Yeah, so I think that the industry was widely expecting the uh, government to increase the strike price for around six after, as you mentioned, the very, very low participation in AR5 for uh, wind in general, but offshore wind critically. Um, The raise by over 50%, I think, is probably uh, more or less in line with what the industry has been expecting. There's certainly the uh, responses to this move have been very positive. Um, And it just kind of goes to show that the whole structure of moving towards the lowest possible delivery price over time, regardless of external factors like inflation, inflation on the supply chain, interest rate rates, making debt more challenging, the kind of issues which really are digging into projects which have been causing you know, delays and problems with just those projects we were talking about earlier where Orsted's backing out. Raising the strike price, which for those who aren't aware, is the um, sort of guaranteed offtake price for electricity in the UK. What's interesting is that it's not just the uh, offshore wind price which has gone up. I think the uh, crucial thing here is the methodology that the government's using to allocate these prices has changed. So yes, the offshore wind increase was the most substantial, but we've seen a really quite substantial rise in the strike price for all technologies across the board, uh, with it being most prevalent in offshore wind and also in geothermal, interestingly, which also saw its first allocations in AR5. So the reason that you've been seeing these increases in the price the government is willing to uh, guarantee for these offshore projects uh, and across the technology spectrum is that they have essentially applied a more generous interpretation of supply curves in the modelling that they do to set these prices. And uh, one of the crucial differences is that um, in the past, they would make a model and set the price based on making a certain proportion of projects economically viable in their model. Uh, And that previously could have been around 50% of projects that are viable at a certain price. And so essentially what they are attempting to do there is to only fund the 50% most viable projects. Uh, What they've now done is increased that, that supply curve model. So they're now going to be funding 
uh, in their view, 75% of the economically viable projects. And that increase should do something to um, help with the lack of capacity which was awarded last year by increasing it in the year to come. And these allocation rounds are now going to be an annual event. So hopefully we'll see that kind of ramp up over time as we're moving towards a much more net zero grid. And are these changes expected to compensate for the complete lack of bids from the last round? We're not yet sure on how much capacity is going to be awarded. Obviously, it's an auction process. You can't you can't necessarily say. But as Ash mentioned, crucially, this time offshore wind is being moved into its own bidding pot. So the offshore projects will just be competing against each other rather than against solar and onshore and all the other technologies. So that means that the maximum amount of capacity that um, the government wants to award can be uh, earmarked for offshore wind specifically. And another crucial thing here is that with the latest increase in the Crown Estate's leasing ground, so this is the actual area of the land that fixed offshore and floating wind allocation areas, which uh, for Crown Estate managers where you can actually build these projects, they have said that in those where you're uh, in their latest process, where you're bidding for that area, if you're bidding for one of the newly opened areas as a developer, you cannot bid for one of the other areas that they're opening at the same time. This was announced last month. And so I think there's a kind of theme here of lowering the amount of competition uh, for offshore wind to keep the prices higher. Obviously, that's wonderful if you're a developer. It might represent a slightly less uh, efficient use of money for government, but certainly in the industry, that'll be welcomed. So is this a rare bit of good news for the UK offshore sector? It's definitely a good sign. Now, this has not been officially launched as a tender yet, it's kind of it's quite early on actually in the process to be giving these signals, but I think they're trying to reassure the market that when the auctions open uh, in March next year, the conditions will be more favourable. So, tentative good news, yes. Now, finally, we have a bit of a funds roundup today. A lot of fun stories going on as the year year ends. To kick things off, Ancala Partners is expected to reach their final close on its third flagship fund immediately, according to sources familiar with the matter. The Ancala Infrastructure 3 is scheduled to hit the milestone before the end of this year. The fund has a target size of 1.2 billion euros and is expected to be oversubscribed. Like its predecessor, the fund is understood to invest in a portfolio of small to mid-sized core infrastructure businesses across Europe. Rubicon Capital Management's latest debt fund is expected to make its first investment early next year. Sources have confirmed investment will be made through Rubicon's Infrastructure and Energy Transition Junior Debt Fund. While Rubicon declined to comment on the fund size, market sources have given us a rough estimate of its target size, which you can find on Inspiration's website. The fund seeks to provide flexible capital with a 15, 15 to 50 million euros ticket per transaction in core and core plus opportunities. Finally, Swen Capital Partners is looking to triple the target size of its third vintage. The third iteration of the biomethane fund, Swen Impact for Transition 3, also known as SWIFT 3, will have a target size of 1 billion euros and is expected to launch early next year. Um, so what do we know about SWIFT 2? The French investor reached final close on SWIFT 2 earlier this month, raising 583 million euros in commitments. That exceeded its 300 million target size. Commitments from SWIFT 2 came from 37 clients, mostly made up of European institutional investors, according to sources. SWIFT 2 is fully deployed, with most of its commitments in Europe and some of it in North America. The fund targets 60% in the biomethane sector, production and infrastructure, 
30% in renewable hydrogen production in H2 derivatives, and the final 10% in other low-carbon infrastructures, which include renewable heat, renewable electricity, and carbon capture. Thank you very much, Ash. Thank you, Oliver. Also, last week, Inspiratia had our European Energy Transition Awards Ceremony 2023, where we took stock of the best of the past year in renewables. And the industry came together to award the most standout deals and institutions which really made a difference to the energy transition. And here were the winners. Best Energy Transition Fund Manager, Octopus Energy Generation. Best Hydrogen Investor, Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners. Best EV Charging Investor, Octopus Energy Generation. Best Battery Storage Investor, InfraCapital. ESG Leader, Foresight Group. Best Lender in Renewables, NordLB. Best Lender in New Technologies, NatWest. Best Financial Advisors in Renewables, EY. Best Financial Advisor for New Technologies, Green Giraffe. Best Legal Advisor for Renewables, DLA Piper. Best Legal Advisor in New Technologies, Allen & Overy. Best Technical Advisor in New Technologies, ERM. Remember the name, Asper Investment Management. Best Software Provider, Kios. And now the awards given for the most outstanding deals of the year. Outstanding Greenfield Deal, Verdant Solar and Storage Portfolio. Outstanding M&A Deal, Grundus Acquisition. Outstanding PPA Deal, Infinity Global and Statcraft Solar PPA. Outstanding New Markets Deal, The Thierbach Project. Innovative Financial Structure Deal of the Year, Kaskasi and Sophia Offshore Wind Green Lung Facility. And finally, the rising star, Gabrielle Rade. Congratulations to all of the winners. Inspiration will be publishing write-ups on all of the winners uh, of our awards in the coming weeks. Uh, keep an eye out for those, where we'll be going into detail on why these deals stood out to the market and why the judging panel selected them for prominence. And now, as we mentioned earlier, it's time to turn to SMRs in the US. SMRs have been the up-and-coming technology, the next step for nuclear for a long time now. But as the technology reached its maturity, there have been many teething issues with the first projects. Dealer is here to tell us more. Yes, thank you, Oliver. So um, over the last few weeks, um, one of the most promising projects that have been developing in the United States has actually been terminated. Um, and the reason this was such a big deal, really, is because it was actually considered to be somewhat of a significant milestone um, because this was the first and only SMR to receive approval from the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission for its design. So what went wrong for this project? So basically, it was a, the main issue was that um, it failed to attract enough subscribers for the plant's power. This was between NewScale and its um, primary customer, which is the Utah Associated Municipal Power Systems, UAMS. This is basically a nonprofit electricity wholesaler with 50 municipal and regional utilities that are spread across um, seven western states. So the project generally consisted of six reactors that were that were meant to generate 462 megawatts, um, and it was meant to be built at the U.S. Idaho National Laboratory, and it was aimed to be operational by the end of the decade. Um, so part of what happened is that under the project's power purchase agreement, these individual utility subscribers had committed to contributing to its development costs. 
these were also escalating based on their offtake levels. So these off-ramps that have been provided, that had been provided at specific dates, based on the condition that those opting for an exit would also be responsible for covering the costs that had been incurred until that point, led to actually eight subscribers opting for this option, um, for this course of action in 2020. And a significant off-taker followed in the following year. So based on this sort of precedent, there was also an upcoming off-ramp in the upcoming year. And this led to the remaining subscribers also choosing to exit, thereby they have been able to avoid the responsibility of shouldering the costs that have been accrued thus far. And instead, they chose compensation for the project. So the off-takers left um, one over the other. But what was the uh, initial spark? What was the problem with the project? So the initial spark, basically, it has been skyrocketing costs. Um, And again, as I said in the intro earlier, this isn't by no means um, a unique story to the nuclear or the SMR sector in in particular. Um, The entire energy transition sector industry has been affected by rising costs in um, materials, higher inflation, higher interest rates, and generally increased supply chain costs. But um, particularly for these more nascent and novel technologies that are looking to be uh, implemented more widely and become economically viable and operational, it is really important for them to be uh, operating within sort of more favorable financial conditions um, and material costs that allow them to succeed, basically. And the SMR industry has basically become somewhat of a victim of this. Initially, New Scale in 2021 expected to be delivering power for $58 per megawatt hour. However, this figure had to be uh, revised and it skyrocketed by 53%, reaching $89 per megawatt hour. And again, this is due to higher costs affecting the project. But even the 58 dollars per megawatt hour though had been the result of an upwards revision from 55 dollars per megawatt hour which was the case from 2016 to 2020 Um, and this had followed uh, a project downsizing from 12 to 6 reactor modules that have basically halved the project's power capacity as well and this number would have been even higher if it weren't for quite generous subsidies the project um, had benefited from partly from the Department of Energy contributing to it and partly subsidies provided by the Inflation Reduction Act that had been introduced in August of last year. Obviously, the termination of this project has also affected um, New Scale's share price, which has plummeted by 42% um, because it was widely also considered to be a setback for the wider SMR industry. However, A lot of its supporters, um, by its supporters, I mean the SMR technology, do just see this as teething issues. And one of the sort of industry leaders I spoke to, um, John Lindbergh, who is the um, president of the Swedish Nuclear Society, um, because it is such a novel technology, these are just drawbacks that are inherent in being the trailblazer in this industry. And maybe also um, to highlight the 
increased material costs as well um, in terms of the commodities that are used in nuclear power plant construction. Just to give a few examples of what has actually happened. So the price for fabricated steel plate has risen by 54%. Carbon steel piping went up by 106%. And fabricated structural steel prices have also surged by 70%. So generally, these projects have just been projects have just been suffering um, from these wider macroeconomic conditions that have been negatively impacting the project's success. Okay, so there are problems with the early stages of the adoption of a new technology. We all expect that. But there are still a lot of broader factors going for SMRs as a concept. Yes, definitely. I think um, SMRs have also been embraced from governments across the world um, and have been firmly integrated into their energy strategies. I think the latest has been Sweden somewhat recently saying that they're looking to integrate at least two SMRs into their energy strategy. Even New Scale itself doesn't seem to be slowing down itself and it is continuing its international efforts. So I think it is um, continuing projects um, in Sweden, Poland, Romania. So SMRs will be quite critical in achieving a low-carbon economy. Um, Currently, nuclear energy generally is accounting for about 10% of all electricity generated globally. However, um, a lot of these have been now, um, these more traditional nuclear reactors have been reaching maturity. um, And over the last decade, only two new nuclear reactors have come online in the U.S., Um, alongside over a dozen being shuttered. And also on the global level, over the last two decades, um, closures have outnumbered new reactors by 108 to 97. And a lot of these new openings are mainly based in Asia, um, particularly in China, who is also focusing a lot of its attention to SMRs as well. So it isn't only continuing to build conventional reactors, but also... SMRs. Um, And I think the general takeaway for supporters of this technology has been that this is more of a test for the Utah project, uh, specifically than the general threat to the broader landscape of SMR technology. Um, And I think, again, for its supporters, the fundamental benefits of the technology remain unchanged um, and will continue to be an important technology within the energy transition. Thank you very much, Dila. And that will be it for this week. Uh, Unfortunately, we didn't get time to get on to the UK's autumn statement. We'll be coming back to that with more analysis next week. But in short, uh, there's more provision for increasing grid capacity, speeding up um, the queues for uh, renewable projects getting on the grid, as well as uh, one of the bigger picture figures from the statement was... Uh, a commitment to make permanent the tax breaks available for capex investments for businesses which was brought in as a temporary measure post-pandemic that could be staying in the long term Uh, all of these things i'm sure will be affecting the market going forward but we'll bring you some full updated thoughtful analysis on that next time thank you so much for listening to energy transition today i've been oliver i'm dila thanks for listening and i'm ash we'll see you next week goodbye